Hello and welcome to another exciting and, you guessed it, jam-packed episode of Modern Day Philosophers. I'm your host, Daniel Lobel, and happy 2019 to you. Happy New Year. I hope you're making the best of it. I've been doing well. I'm exercising. I'm losing weight. I'm eating healthy. I'm eating plants, and I'm enjoying it. I'm cooking a lot more than I ever did before. And uh, boy, it's really fun cooking. It's just such a creative process. It's one of the arts. It's one of the arts. I think it's the only art you can eat. So that's a, that's a fun thing about the culinary arts. I'm cooking curries and Chinese dishes and all kinds of things, just using plants, and I'm loving it, which is a great intro and lead into my guest today because he is a longtime vegan. I'm not a vegan. I'm a mostly vegan, but he's a fully vegan, and he's a great comedian, and not only that, he is the voice who sings the new intro song that you're going to hear today. I'm talking about my buddy Mike Kaplan, who I recorded this with earlier in the year. I guess you can't say the year, but you know, earlier within this 365-day period, last year technically. Um, and uh, yeah, the new the new song written by Zach Sherwin, the great Zach Sherwin, my buddy who was on a previous episode of this show. Check him out if you don't know about him already. He does fantastic raps and all kinds of great comedy stuff on the internet. And uh, and the song is played by On Guitar and Sang by Mike Kaplan. So you're going to get to hear that in just a second. In the meantime, today's show is brought to you uh, by myself once again. Reminding you to please order a copy of my comic book, Fair Enough. Go to fairenoughcomic.com, uh, issue two. There are still some available. Issue one is sold out. But uh, go get some, I'll sign them, I'll send them, and it's a great way to support the show. And if you just say, hey, you know what, I just want to support the show, you can always make a donation by going to moderndayphilosophers.net and donating there on the website. I want to remind everybody to keep moving out there, exercise. It's been changing my whole state of mind. You know, it's really interesting, I think more and more about how little push there is societally for people to get healthy. I mean, everybody says get healthy, but nobody actually encourages healthy behavior. If you look at the media, if you look at television, they always make fun of health. It's always like, oh, you're a health nut, you know? What's so nuts about wanting to be healthy? It's nuts to not want to be healthy. It's like, and, and they make it seem like it's so hard. And I bought into it for years. I bought into this lie for so long but it's right there and it's accessible and you can do it. Uh, just start by walking every day. Hold yourself accountable. Walk 30 minutes a day. Start there. Let me know how it's going. You can always write me at thecomical at yahoo.com uh, and, 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 and cut out as much processed food from your life as you possibly can because that also puts you into some kind of uh, hypnotic days. Anyway, that's that's it for for now on my health lecture, but... But I feel good, and I want to share it with you. So that's uh, and don't be oh now he's all uh, high and mighty with his lecturing with his health. I'm not. I just honestly I have something that's doing good things for me, and when I have something good, I want to share it with other people. And I know that you guys tune in and you listen to me, and hopefully you take what I'm saying to heart. Uh, some of the things, and I hope that if I can help you to extend your life, to extend the quality of your life every single day, just a little bit, the way I'm feeling it right now, I want to do that for you. All right, listen, I, um, 
get healthy, be happy, have a good 2019, and enjoy my wonderful guest, my buddy for a long time, the wonderful Mike Kaplan, coming at you without further ado, except, of course, for this intro song. Enjoy. When Daniel LaBelle was in school, he didn't pay any attention. He's older and wiser, he's learning philosophy with his comedian hench people, each of whom is a wonderful sage in their own right as well. It's modern day philosophers, and now here's Daniel LaBelle. Hello, Mike, how you doing? Great, thank you for having me, Daniel. <laughs> that was so matter of fact. Absolutely. The answer is great. Great. I've known you and been friends with you for a very long time at this point, I think. About a decade. Yeah. So it's been quite a decade, huh? Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, I feel like only a couple things happened. Only a few? Yeah. In the past 10 years, 2000, I moved to New York in 2008. uh, And yeah, just about, I only can think of, you know, I moved there and you moved to LA. Those are the basic, those are the only things that I know about. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Yes, definitely. It's been an eventful run in our lives and life in general, for certain. I remember you used to do uh, some great appearances on my old show on Comical Radio. Loved it, yeah. One time, I believe you and Dave Kasten dressed up the same for some reason. Oh, that some, makes sense. Some contest of some sort. That sounds familiar. It's it's so interesting being, you know, I'm almost 40 and have had so many, you know, obvi- not just me, but I'm sure that everybody by a certain point in their life has enough experiences that you don't, the ones that you remember, the ones that stick out to you yeah. are not the ones that even other people, like you could have the most lasting impression of a moment in my life that I have almost no recollection of. Like if you ask me, what was special about a time that you and Dave Kasten uh, did something? I'd be like, uh, I don't know. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that's now you've lit up that uh, that cognitive structure in my brain. And I'm like, yeah, that does sound, I can tell you nothing more about it, but. Do you remember the first time you met me? Uh, I know that I was, you know, dating Micah Fox, who was okay. also on your radio show. And I believe, I mean, I guess my memory, my memory that I'm creating now is that it was at the radio station uh, the first time that I came in to be on the show. It's better than I can remember. Mm-hmm. I don't remember. And I, I just remember my mood at the time, like, because I think, you know, I had just moved to New York. I'd been doing comedy about six years in Boston. And I think I had uh, an idea of, like, what the show would be that was not accurate. <laughs> Um, like, I think, you know, Micah had done some preparation, like, she was like, you know, telling me about you guys and what it might be like, but I, I interpreted it as like a warning to be like on guard, like, <laughs> don't let them get you in some way, uh-huh. uh, which is, you know, knowing you now, I know that you're not, uh, there's no way that you are interested in getting me. <laughs> Uh, other than to understand me, look, right. look out! He's gonna he's gonna get you. You mean he'll he'll appreciate my ideas? That is what I mean. I might get you. Yeah, yeah. I think I think he'll get what you're laying down. Mm. So I remember coming in sort of on guard and like the way that I think that a lot of people assume comedians might be like worried about hecklers, you know, mm. which I don't go into most shows worried. So she put you in this heightened state of. Cautiousness. Yeah. And I don't want to put it on her either, because I'm sure that it was more coming from places in me that were capable of being insecure. Probably so a what, little of both. Yeah, yeah. What, whatever it was that she said uh, lit me up in a certain way. That makes sense, because I do remember 
Well, I don't remember that that was the first time I met you. I do remember the first time you came on the show. I didn't like you. I, <laughs> I like I wasn't trying to get you, but I was like, this guy's weird. Like, and I now understand that. And then the, the next time I I saw you, you were not that way. And sure, now it all makes sense. And I I was actually going to bring that up to you, but you answered it before. I, but it wasn't a, a question. I was just like, you know, sure. But that makes that makes a lot of sense. I also uh, I like the the genre of you know of relationship conversation where like there's a lot of people that I either I didn't like or rubbed me the wrong way the first time I met them years ago, and that you know now could be some of my best friends or somebody whose comedy I didn't like, yeah. but now I love you know, and I think it all comes from. Or a lot of it comes from the idea of, I, I don't know whose quote this is originally, but that we don't see the world as it is, but we see the world as we are. So mm-hmm. if you see somebody as antagonistic, I mean, you are bringing some antagonism to that. So you probably brought some antagonism to it the first time. I think I did. And I, I strive not to, I strive to now be, you know, like give people all the, as much as possible from the get-go, you know, knowing nothing about anyone, all things being equal. And even more than that, uh, the benefit of the doubt, you know, the, uh, that I'm, I'm aiming to be positively intentioned. And so I strive to see other people as positively intentioned, even if you had, you know, some evidence that, you know, I mean, I think just a lot of people are fearful, you know, a lot Mm -hmm. of people are raised and, you know, as children, uh, you know, I think I was, I was loved and sort of, you know, supported by my, family, but also there's an element of like, but out there, you know, like, like yeah. my, my parents <laughs> with like driving, they're like, be careful. There's a lot of nuts out there. And I'm like, oh, I've, I've also gotten into some accidents that were my fault. You yeah, know, yeah. like I'm not, I'm not a nut, but. I don't know much about your parents. That's why I, I kind of. Sure. Um, stopped you there. But are you an only child? First of all, I am. Yeah. I would have guessed that. I don't know why. Just, you did guess I, it. I mean, I guess I did guess you it. essentially. Yeah. Uh, but um, uh, what do your folks do? Uh, they, for my entire life, uh, up until their retirement recently, and now they've both, my dad is doing other things, but they were teachers, music teachers. Oh, what, what specific music? Uh, well, my dad, as uh, for most of my childhood, was a high school band director and also uh, taught private clarinet, flute, and saxophone lessons out of our house. Oh, the woodwinds. And yeah, my mother uh, was an elementary school music educator. Uh, you know, so she would mostly, she would do sometimes strings, like her main instruments were like uh, trombone, French horn, baritone horn, brass. Uh, yeah, so she uh, she and my father met, you know, in college studying music. Mm-hmm. They played in like marching bands together, like down the Jersey Shore. I grew up in New Jersey. Uh, they played in, you know, the New Jersey like symphony. Sounds romantic. Uh, it does sound that way. Any musical relationship sounds romantic. To I mean, though. yeah, it's interesting for, I mean, I, it's hard to say, like, I don't want to, uh, you know, there's some people who, for whom music might not have the same, uh, the same resonance, mm-hmm. so to speak. Uh, but like, since I started playing the violin when I was four and it was, you know, kind of like music is, or was, uh, at least very much like, if not exactly like a language that I learned. Uh, and so it's, you know, sort of been an intricate inherent part of my existence via, you know, nurture from a very early age, if not nature from my parents, uh, you know, genetic capacity, sound. Other, you know, they. I, I used to have a joke where I would say, you know, God said, "Let there be light," but He said it with sound, so sound actually was first. <laughs> if it was, you know, if that is, if I'm going to nitpick, yeah, <laughs> which I'm not. 
So I know that you and Micah Sherman used to do like a, a, a two-man act where you did musical comedy. We did. I mean, I was I came at comedy from music. Like I played the violin for years and years. Do you still? Uh, I still sometimes, yeah. You know, I played violin as a kid. I didn't. And um, I loved it. And my family moved from Queens, New York, to Long Beach, Long Island in New York. And shortly after that, my lessons stopped. And I thought for years that it was because of the move. And I was so angry that they took me out of these lessons. And I always thought I could have been a great violinist, you know. And then not too long ago, a few years ago, I brought this up at home on a trip back to New York and my parents revealed to me that no, I was in fact kicked out of music school because my teacher, Mr. Moon, who is a very strict Korean man, uh, said that I was an unteachable oaf or something. <laughs> That'd be a good name for an album uh, of, of violin music that you have relearned from another more lenient, kinder teacher. Uh, I'll work on it. I'll teach you. Or uh, my one of my ex-girlfriends, who's a good friend now, who I'm not sure if you've met, named Casey, uh, lives out here and is a violin teacher. So mm-hmm. I'm sure if you want to pick it up again, uh, I, I, I don't think I do. But I do want to. I want to learn the clarinet because, like, all the music that I that I really love is clarinet, like so. klezmer. Uh, no, like uh, New Orleans jazz. Ah, I'm sorry. If uh, Klezmer's my, cool, though. my guess was anti-Semitic. <laughs> <laughs> no, I love Klezmer. It's cool, but it's not what I generally listen to. Understood. Uh, yeah, that that sounds great. I I encourage you. Yeah. To take those lessons, I was good at the violin, and I I think I was teachable. I didn't like it. I didn't I didn't like that I had to do it, so uh. I didn't practice as much as I was supposed to. So sometimes I imagine, you know, I'm like, wow, if I had practiced as much as I was supposed to, and more, like I could have. I think I still, if I wanted to, I could pick up the violin and play it hours a day and get back into, you know, fighting. Loving mm-hmm. shape. But then in in high school, I taught myself guitar, and yeah. I loved it. And there's a, uh, do you know the book The Prophet by Khalil Gibran? No. Uh, I think I'm saying that just pretentiously enough. Uh, so <laughs> the Prophet, uh, there's a, a quote in it that I, that I love. It's, uh, the greater that sorrow carves into your being, the more joy you can contain. Hmm. And one... Uh, application of that in my own life is that, you know, I was made to play the violin and it made me experience a lot of sorrow. Sorrow, Uh, But then because I was taking all these theory lessons and because I was, you know, made to learn how to use my fingers in this certain way. And, uh, you know, I was, I gained this discipline, even though I didn't want it. Uh, Eventually when I was uh, a teenager and a friend had a guitar and I just picked it up and it was easy to you know, transfer the skills. Like the guitar was easier to learn once knowing how to play the violin. And I loved it. So I didn't even think of it as practicing. I just played it all the time and it was just so full of joy. And then I started writing songs and some of them were funny. And that's how I ended up performing at a comedy club. And then I, you know, transitioned into mainly when I perform comedy, I don't use, uh, you know, instruments. But then a few years into my uh, pursuit of comedy, I met Micah Sherman uh, as you mentioned, and he knew we both, he had played in bands in high school. And so he just asked me if I wanted to write some songs for fun. Mm-hmm. And so we did. Yeah. In that scenario, do you feel like your, your joy from guitar is proportional to your sadness from violin? I think it's greater now. I mean, I guess, I don't know. Uh, it's very difficult to uh, calculate uh, joy and sorrow, 
but I also focus more on the joy and and the there is now joy in that sorrow and also like playing the violin now is joyful because I don't have to and anything you know I get to do whatever I want to do now um and I would say so if my mom is listening who probably feels bad at the idea that she caused me sorrow uh-huh. but you know I'm like but uh, you know on the way to to joy also, I don't think that sorrow is, you know, to be avoided. I mean, I mean obviously, mm. I'm not recommending going out and having a bunch of painful experiences, but, you know, like, that's don't do that moving forward. But any painful experiences that I have from the past and that I think, you know, I've seen from a lot of people, either in comedy, music, art of any kind, if you have a painful experience, mm-hmm. you can learn from it and or, you know, sort of transmogrify it, you know, alchemize it yeah. into uh, something Joyful or beautiful. In fairness, I do think that sorrow is probably, if there was an official emotion for the violin, it would be sorrow. That's fair. So. I mean, other than, you know, there's there's bluegrass, which I would say has a different flavor to it, or, uh, or you know, country in general, fiddling, which some people are like, what's the difference between a violin and a fiddle? And I'd say the, the instrument itself mm-hmm. needn't be, it could be the, you know, the exact same instrument, it's just the function of how it's used. Yeah, 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 fiddle sounds fun. Violin sounds sad. Oh, yeah. Uh, I was never- just telling a friend of mine, like, you never, like, every Holocaust song is on the violin. You never hear, like, you know, a banjo. That's definitely true. <laughs> this is this is from Auschwitz. Somebody yeah. pulled- <laughs> uh, dueling Auschwitz banjos. Uh, you also never, you know, there's the, the classic trope of the world's smallest violin playing, uh-huh. you know, for... Uh, sad purposes, right. but you never hear like for for joy the world's most gigantic violin. <laughs> You'd probably have to bring out a different uh, instrument. Yes, yeah, <laughs> because you would think it actually would be the opposite way uh, oh, way around. True. Yeah. Like, yeah. Like I mean, at least hey, it's sad music, but at least it's so small you can't even really hear it. Yeah. So it's almost <laughs> it's almost like there's no violin playing. <laughs> You're just sitting alone with your sadness. And why is violin the only one? You know, that that got that treatment. It's true. This is uh, a thought that I've had uh, where sometimes people, when they're having a, when they're in a certain mood, will listen to certain music. Like perhaps, you know, to be overly simple about it, uh, some people, when they're in a sad mood, will listen to sad music. uh, And that makes makes sense. Mm -hmm. Uh, For me, I do the opposite. Like when I'm, I listen to the saddest music when I am in like the, the most sort of together positive place. And it's sort of like, it's nostalgic in a way. Because of the sadness? Yeah. For me, if I, if I am sad and I listen to sad music, it overwhelms me. Uh-huh. Uh, like, so I'll listen to things that are like more up-tempo, like hip hop or, you know, just sort of like rocking things. If I'm going to listen to something mm-hmm. while I'm sad. No, sometimes I will sit with my sadness. Uh, and I'm I'm not opposed to that, but if we're talking about using music to help process and you know engage with emotion, yeah, I like being like if I'm in a happy relationship, you know, or if I'm in a, a good relationship place at the time, then listening to songs sort of like bemoaning being single or loss or breakup or mm-hmm. heartache, like I can be like, oh yeah, because you know all of those parts of my life are still within me, and so I can I can tap into that and, you know, resonate with that experience, but without it, you know, bringing me down a, a deep spiraling well. Right. Uh, and so, and in the reverse, yeah, when I, when I am actually sad, it's nice to remember, you know, that there are good uh, M&M songs. Yeah. Yeah. So 
I just remembered something. I think when I met you, you'd been recently divorced. Is that right? Uh, that's 100% right. I moved to New York in 2008 and probably met you that year. And uh, I had gotten divorced, I think, officially in 2007. Okay. So were you doing comedy and slash music when you got married? Yes. And my wife was also a comedian slash musician. Okay. Uh, yeah, I started doing comedy in about 2002. Like, I sort of started pursuing music like my senior year of college, which was like 99, 2000, and then was doing that mainly for the next couple of years, striving to, you know, perform at music open mics. And I did find this one comedy club that let me play, you know, funny songs once in a while. But yeah, yeah 2002 is when I really started just pursuing comedy. I think I met my wife in 2000. Oh, I forget if it's 2000. It must have been 2003-ish. Uh, so yeah, between 2003 and 2007, that's when I was with. So you had four-year marriage. Uh, I think technically we we were not you know ma- not married for okay. a year. Then we got married probably two thousand four. Then we I think we separated in two thousand six and divorced in two thousand seven. Was that traumatic for you? Uh, de- like I would say the the definition of trauma you know is probably I mean there might be a more specific definition by which I would say no. Uh, for me, it was one of the more you know difficult emotional experiences of my life. Uh, yeah, one of the most, I guess. Uh, maybe the most. Uh, it was. De- I definitely remember. I mean, I wasn't. I remember getting married, and you know, the idea that I had about marriage was I. I was optimistic, but I was also realistic. Like I understood that you know, not all marriages lasted forever. I wasn't you know self aware enough to like be like, hey, I'm only 25, you know, is and I've only been with this person a year and a half. But she was the person, you know, I'd been in a bunch of relationships that had lasted a year or less than that. And this felt definitely like bigger and, you know, had more, had potential, had like, yeah. I, I wanted to keep being with her. I I thought she was, and I still do think she is, you know, great. I think she is smart and kind and funny and creative. And those are all wonderful things. And I would then discover over the, the course of several years together that, uh, that those things can all be true. And also there are other incompatibilities mm-hmm. that didn't rear their head uh, or heads until, you know, until you I'd been knowing her for more than a year and a half. Sure. Um, and so, yeah, so, you know, we were, I'd say together about three-ish years. And at that point we, we went to counseling. We tried to talk about, you know, whether what staying together would look like, but uh, she was struggling with depression and that was, uh, difficult for her, obviously, and then also difficult for our relationship. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we tried, she tried things, we tried things, and then ultimately uh, decided that it would be better to part. But certainly, I I was definitely sad, and uh, it was and it was hard. Do you suffer from depression, too? I, I don't. I heard you talking about sitting in the sadness, but that's just the normal kind of sadness you're saying? Yes. The, I mean, I would say... You know, have, knowing people, knowing, you know, friends and family members who, you know, are clinically diagnosed with uh, depression or uh, manic depression or d- bipolar, uh, you know, different whatever, whatever portions of the, uh, the spectrum of uh, mental health difficulties. Like I, I'm, you know, there's, it's a spectrum. Mm-hmm. And as you know, everything is. Yes. Which is. Well, I always find it funny when people say that person's on the spectrum. <laughs> I did a joke about it once, by the way. Sorry to kill your flow. No, please. It didn't go over well because I guess the subject matter is just too touchy. But I had a 
joke about my dog where I tried to bring him into Costco. Uh-huh. And they said, I'm sorry, um, you can't bring a dog into Costco. And I said, it's not a dog. It's, it's, it's my kid. <laughs> and which is actually true. That's a true story that happened. And the woman, it's a, uh, it's a spectrum. At the, yeah. The, the woman at the door said like, as it took my statement, the funniest thing about this to me is that she actually tried to use logic to prove that I was wrong. She goes, no. And she pointed out his dog ears. Wow. <laughs> like, like that, like aside from that, that could be a kid. Yeah. She goes, no, you know, kids don't have ears like that. Wow. And, uh, and I said, well, he's on the spectrum. And, and I said, you know, he's on the dog to human spectrum. Yes. And he leans heavily towards dogs. <laughs> but, That's funny to me. But yeah, but didn't go over. I tried it a few times. I understand. So the point is, I, I am somewhere uh, along, I think, you know, towards the end of uh, functional, you know, like I sometimes I'd say I think the the mental uh, health issue that I would struggle with most is would be, you know, tending towards like uh, obsessive compulsive tendencies, uh, which don't debilitate me. And so, in fact, because they're not debilitating, sometimes they help me in certain ways, like maintain like organization and order in, you know, the way that I write jokes and record jokes and store jokes and remember jokes. I think if I was further along, uh, you know, if I did, if I let myself be more obsessive and compulsive about it, uh, then I would, I think, spend more time that I didn't, that I don't think I need to spend on ideas that I don't think are as valuable. Because there is, at least it seems, in the, the lifetime of this body, uh, a limited time. So you're very regimented. I mean, I, I have the potential to be. And one, so I think of it as, as far as like guidelines. And mm-hmm. so one new guideline is like I used to not meditate uh, because that's most people didn't. Uh, yeah. Who do? Like it's, uh, I, I don't know anybody who was born meditating and then just kept doing it. Uh, I mean, maybe we were all Unless meditating we all were, before. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I was thinking that too. For certain, uh, <laughs> depending on your definition. That might be why babies cry when they come out. Oh, yeah. And I, I stopped. It's a, it's a yeah. disturbed meditation. Uh, so, but yeah, I, I think I started meditating maybe like a year, somewhere in a year to two years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so now I do it every morning for about 20 minutes when I get up with this app, Headspace. And I, I have that app. I, yeah. I really like it. Um, before I ever did it, I was like, why would I do that? Because there's so many other things to do. Like I could, with that 20 minutes, I like, I, there's TV shows that I haven't watched. And now I'm like, oh, it's, I'm happier meditating every day and watching one fewer TV show. So important meditation. That's why I, I love prayer in the morning. It's, it's a meditation. It's a mantra. It sounds very similar. Yeah. 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 Well, just going back, I, sure. I, I always think, I, and I think I've mentioned some of this, but not, not all of it, but I think of comedians and uh, with as having two great potentials. We're like great noticers and great miners. So like, it sounds like you've got it down. Like, I think like some comedians are lazy miners. Like they'll go to the river for a little while. They'll get a few little pieces of gold and they're like, that's enough. And some people are, are there like, you know, like, the the example is you writing everything down, transferring. You're like, let me see. There must be so. So I, you know, the noticing and the mining is kind of the same thing, but you notice a lot of things that you don't mind, but you can't mind things you don't notice. Yes, that's true. And 
in the beginning, I was like, I don't know how many things there are going to be that I'm going to notice. So I'm going to notice everything. Mm -hmm. And then now I'm like, oh, I've noticed more than I can mine. So I now have to, and I don't want to just notice, you know, I can spend my all day, every day noticing all day, just like thinking of things and writing down things. But then uh, I like that, you know, on stage, like there's sort of a, a, a filtration process. Like I have to say something. And so I pick the things either that are important in the moment or that I've decided are important from before or valuable in some way, you know, either about what's happening now in my life, in the world, or just a thing that I think is the funniest or is, has the most potential for, you know, for me to enjoy telling and for an audience to enjoy potentially hearing as I build it out. Um, But yeah, thank you. Thank you for saying, I, I do think. I think that is a thing that you have noticed. The, <laughs> the noticing, the, and, the the noticing and the mining. And so the point is, uh, I do not believe that I am clinically depressed. Okay, that's good. <laughs> yes, the just the the regular uh, ebbs and flows, peaks and valleys of you know human, uh, you know emotion. I, I experience human emotions. Yeah, there was one time, if I can say, uh, I don't know if we've talked about ayahuasca ceremonies. Uh, are you familiar with ayahuasca? I am. I think you told me that you did one. Yes, I've done a number. Okay. Uh, enough that there's uh, like not they're they're all unique in their own way, uh, but also there's sometimes sort of you know through lines and themes that might arise from one to the next. Mm-hmm. And so just to for a a quick uh, fresher or refresher for anyone, uh, it's a, a vine and a leaf from South America that released DMT into your brain, which is potentially what happens when we die. And so there are, you know, maybe uh, you see visions, maybe you it's sort of like trance-like, uh, it's dream-like, it's, it's, these are all poor ways to, this is not getting it across exactly, but it's like a, potentially a spiritual hallucinogenic experience. Uh, though the hallucinations themselves are not like the, the thing, like those are sort of the, the, the frame for the emotional painting that goes on. And often the way that it, that it, the experience goes is there'll be like sort of anxiety at the beginning for me. Like this is, doesn't happen all the time, but you know, you don't know what's going to happen. Is it going to be, you know, how powerful is it going to be? How, how positive, how negative, like what will you see? What you, what will you feel? What will it unearth from within you? Huh. I never thought about, uh, do Martians have things unearthed? Or unmarsed. Um, and uh, so sometimes then after, like, uh, the experience lasts several hours and by the end of it, I will often be in a different, more medi- like a meditative, like different headspace. I, I will have changed, like the anxiety sometimes will have dissipated and I will be, you know, I'll just be there. There was one time, one weekend where I did two ceremonies and I was for one of them, worried a lot at the beginning because it was actually during the afternoon and I had a show at night. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was like, I hope that the t- like the timing should work, but sometimes you don't know. Sometimes it lasts longer. Like you can't you can't control it necessarily, or I I couldn't. Mm. Uh, if anybody can, great, wonderful. Um, but so I was like worried about that, but I was like, well, it's happening. I'm gonna do it. And then it was it started anxious and then ended in this beautiful way. And I got to my show and it was. Everything was fine. Mm-hmm. Then like two days later, I had an experience where like I had no time constraints. And so I went into it uh, like I totally calm. I'm like, wow, this is like 
totally different. This is better. This is this is the way you want to be. You right. know, nothing, no worries from the outside world, which, you know, what is the outside world we're part of? It's all the world. Uh, and so I started very calm and then sort of descended into anxiety that Hmm. I, and I don't know specifically the reason, but I know that a valuable thing that I got from it was I had this thought of like, but I'm supposed to, this isn't supposed to, I'm, I'm supposed to be feeling good. Yeah. I'm supposed to, and I would have this thought of, oh, I'm, I'm every once in a while I'd be like that, who said that? Like who, who guaranteed, like who mm. said I'm supposed to, who, there's no obligation. There's no mandate. Like in, in this experience, in life, in anything, like there's no supposed to. And so when I would, when I would have the like, oh, you're not supposed to feel good. I was like, oh yeah, ah, that makes me feel good. <laughs> like to remember that I'm not supposed to feel good made me feel good, which is similar to what happened when I got divorced. And there was like the worst three days of my life. Uh, Like emotionally, I was just, there was a period of three days where I remember just nonstop being out of control of my emotions. Like I was like crying constantly. And, you know, if, if that was my life, then I would be like, I am clinically depressed. Like I would, but that was, you know, a specific reaction to, you know, I was mourning a loss, the grief of, you know, even though I knew that my wife and I didn't, like I didn't, we didn't want to be together, but she had been a part of my life for years, the longest any partner ever had. And I had this loss and it was affecting me. And a thing that I was at, that was acting on top of that, I think was my thought that I wasn't supposed to be feeling that way. I'm like, I'm a happy person. Like I'm supposed to be a feeling good person. Like I'm a capable person. I'm able to deal with these things, but now I'm in the face of not being able to deal with it. And so on top of not being able to deal with it, I now have this identity crisis of like, mm. but I thought I was, I'm like, not only have I lost my wife, I'm wrong about who I am. You lost yourself. Yes. And great, great assessment. And then I ultimately, like I would learn, you know, again and again, like in that ayahuasca ceremony years later, uh, in this, in that experience, I would ultimately understand like, oh, of course being, you know, being sad, crying hysterically, all of these, what I saw as like negative emotions, these reactions to this very, like, if you told somebody like, hey, my, my wife and I are splitting up and I'm, I'm very sad. Like, you'd be like, well, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Uh, and so ultimately I was like, oh, when you, when I experience a sad thing, it makes sense to have sad emotions and to not, you know, pile on, but like, don't beat myself up for that. Don't be like, you're not supposed to. In fact, you are, if anything, you are supposed to, like, if you're, whatever you are feeling, like that is what you're feeling. And that's like a thing that I would learn. I would, you know, meditation, like the, med- the Headspace app would point out, like wherever, you know, wherever you are, like sometimes stress arises. Mm-hmm from the discrepancy between where we are and where we think we should be or where we want to be. We're like, I'm here, but I want to be here. Yes. And yeah. it's like being wherever you are is quote unquote, okay. You know, yeah, it's yeah. okay to be sad. It's okay to be grieving uh, in the sense that if that's what you're doing, then that's what you have to do. That's what you get to do to then progress to a point where you won't be having that experience. Yeah, I've noticed a lot from talking to people and from my own experience that depression often comes out of disappointment in where you feel you're supposed to be. Uh, it's this false sense of uh, accomplishment that you have. Like, it's a false hope of accomplishment. Sure. Or, or whatever. I don't even know. How, I'm, I'm not saying it right, but it's this idea that you should 
accomplish certain things. And in the process of not accomplishing them, you beat yourself up for not accomplishing them. Whereas you could almost be accomplishing them for by not. You could certainly accomplish not beating yourself up over it. Right. And that would be a, a good first accomplishment. And that was really helpful to me at some point when I realized, oh, okay, I'm holding on to all these expectations for myself. Sure. That are not always realistic. And because of these fantastical expectations, I'm not enjoying reality. So I was able to like let go of a lot of depression because of that, for me, anyway. But That's great. Yeah. There's a, a new friend of mine, Laura, uh, a comedian in Boston, who told me a story about her childhood when she was in school. And there was uh, the teacher was talking, and a, a, the tallest girl in her class like just happened to like st- stand in front of her for a time, like not on purpose, but blocking the teacher from her, which made her upset, and she like threw a tantrum that she was like, you know, expressed her disdain for what was happening, and then the teacher looked and saw what was happening, and then pointed behind Laura, and then she turned around and saw that she was standing in front of the shortest girl in the class. And so I think that that, like, I mean, it has so many, for me, like, potential applications in life, like, where there have been times in my life where I, like, see other comedians uh, accomplishing things and achieving things, some some that I want, some that I don't want, you know, whether it's a TV show or performing at a club that I've never performed at or having, you know, a, you know, more people listen to my podcast or whatever whatever it is. Uh, and then we we only... Most we're only potentially looking in one direction, you know, theoretically or metaphorically, but we can also then like turn around and be like, oh, like who who would be happy to be where I am? There's you know so many people that would that could look at me and think I'm like oh, and so it's important to I think have both, you know, be be I'm for me I'm glad like I'm grateful for all that I have accomplished, all that all the opportunities that I've had, and I'm like grateful for all my friends and all the other successful people out there who are achieving things like that aren't they're not achieving them at me. They're in fact, if somebody's doing something valuable and positive and gaining success, like if that helps me understand like, oh, if I want to do something like that, then I can take steps towards doing my version of that. And, you know, I know that we only have as much control or not control as we do over our own actions or thoughts or, you know, just ideas, our beliefs, our our focuses, our framing, our perspective uh, and definitely like the thing that you said about, you know, having expectations for yourself. I don't know how you were raised similar to me, but I was sort of, you know, very encouraged, mm-hmm. uh, to be like, you know, you could be president, you could be a doctor, you could be a lawyer, you could be any of the, you know, Jewish stars, uh, <laughs> of occupations. And, you know, I, and I think that that is, that encouragement was very valuable. It was very helpful. It made me confident, but then also, uh, at a certain point, I had to understand, like, oh, like, it's definitely not possible for every little Jewish child or any <laughs> every child, every encouraged child yeah. uh, to grow up to be president of the United States. Right. Uh, I was like, I mean, I guess I could, like, secede and make my own country. Is that what you're saying? In fact, it's proven to be impossible for every Jewish child. <laughs> so far. So far, yeah. Uh but uh, yeah, the it's good to be encouraged, and then it's also like it's. This, so these are the things I think different differing guidelines of like you know be 
do you know this thing from the Talmud that uh, our friend Zach Sherwin shared with me once that I like a lot? Is uh, it, like if you have two two pockets, have a piece of paper, one one which says this world was created for you, and one that says uh, we are nothing but ash and dust, something like that. Mm-hmm. Like so, these two, you know, seemingly opposite but both true value. Like you know, you are all that you are. You are everything. Uh, you know, your consciousness is the only consciousness that you're experiencing. It is like you are the center of the universe. Like every point looks like the center of the universe. So you are yours and I am mine. And then also in the grandest scheme of things, we know that we are literal, you know, in ways, specks of dust, yeah. you know, uh, perhaps not literal, um, depending on your definition of speck and dust. And literal. Yes. Uh and so having those ideas in mind, you know, if, I ha- if I'm like, I'm going to achieve, I want to achieve something, but also I want to achieve, you know, perspective and like zooming out and being like, if something specific doesn't happen, like, that's fine. Mm-hmm. If, if nothing specific happens, I mean, obviously some specific things will happen. Yeah. Uh, and I've been, you know, like, whether if you're talking about a show business career, uh, like I've had some specific things happen and it doesn't mean I'm going to, if, even if I, st- I could stop right now and be like done with showbiz, like, mm-hmm. and very happy with all that I did accomplish. Like, and even if I never, you know, if I'm never on TV again, if I never have another special, if I never, if I never anything, but I'm like, I know that I can keep performing. I can keep writing. I can keep, you know, making songs and jokes and I could, you know, I could write a book. I could write any, I can do, I can personally do anything and then turn that into whatever the external circumstances will allow and support. Yeah. That's the cool thing about it. And uh, not to spend too much time on this because I want to get onto other things, but I also realized at one point that everything I want to do, I can do in show business specifically, but anything I want to do, I can do. I may not be able to do it with, financing or distribution right or or uh any kind of backing but i can do it on some scale so it's not like i feel i'm prohibited creatively i'm only prohibited in terms of how many people see it or potentially will see it sure and um that's comforting to me because like you ever look at a crowd and you're like, who in this crowd am I trying to impress? <laughs> and then you realize there's nobody specifically in the crowd that you care if they find you funny or not. Sure. That's great. So then why does it matter what the size of the crowd is? It doesn't essentially matter. It could be one person. Do you know this? Uh, I don't know where this came from, but there's like some old joke slash story, uh, a modern fable of, uh, I, uh, let's say, a, a Mexican man is sitting on a dock fishing uh, and having a relaxing time. And then an American businessman comes over and is like, "Hey, what are you? What are you doing? You, right. you fishing? What do you got? To, what kind of bait are you using? What kind of what kind of rod is that? Like, you ever think about using this and this? And maybe you might uh, be able to get be more efficient and get more uh, efficient at fishing, if you will. That's not even <laughs> part of it. But uh, like, and then hey, you'll be catching more fish, and you'll have more than you need. You can sell some of the fish that you don't need, and you'll have more money. You could actually hire other people, and you have a whole fish business going on. And then you don't even need to be doing the fishing. Eventually, it's going to be a self sufficient." Man, this is keeps happening. Yeah. Uh, operation <laughs> where like all the fishing is happening, everything is like paying for itself. You're paying the workers. It's all happening, and then you'll just be able to sit and relax and fish all day. Yeah, yeah. I've heard that. That's and so with comedy, I mean, you know, what is it that you like? The thing that you just said, you know, you want to 
write and perform. You want to tell stories and jokes. You want to, like, if you're like, well, I want to tell it to billions of people. Well, then that's, that's not what we're talking about. You want to do it. And then that allows you to then do it for however many people will, it, it'll sustain. Yeah. And then the extension of that is like when you boil down like the idea of who do you want to have, like it occurred to me at one point, I'm, I've never had ambitions to entertain Burma or Myanmar. Sure. Right. I've never had ambitions to entertain the people of the Congo. Not that I have anything against them. It's just never been like, I've never made any effort to, to reach them. I, I don't, you know, I don't care if they never hear me. I, I'd, you know, be great if I affected them and they were like, oh, I, I love what you do, but. I really hope that you become the most famous American comedian <laughs> in Congo and Myanmar. Yeah, but I, I mean, it's just never been a specific goal of mine. Sure. So then I was like, well, who am I really trying to entertain? It's English speaking countries. And then out of those English speaking countries, who am I really trying to entertain? Like, do I care if like the KKK, the white nationalist rallies, if they're not fans of mine, I don't care. So then you like segmenting it and you find out there's like 12 people ha. that you really want to like uh, impress. And they're all people you went to school with or something. That's, you know? that's fun. I mean, ultimately, uh, the way that I start from, and I think most most comedians that I know start from a place of or maybe not, maybe not even, I'll only speak for myself. Like I think, I mean, I think about what makes me enjoy, like what, what I would like to hear, what I would like to know about myself. Like, oh, like these are the important things to me or the funny things to me, the meaningful things. And like the, the things that are silly, you know, like serious things made light and then like light things made serious, like that sort of yin and yang of, uh, like some people are like, well, you know, do you change your material depending on where you are or who the audience is? And I used to say like, I mean, if the audience is old, then I probably wouldn't tell the joke uh, about the fast and the furious, but now, I mean, now I won't even say that. Like, yes, of course I'll tell whatever, whatever I want to tell. I mean, I'm always happy to be in the moment Mm -hmm. and address what's happening, not changing who I am or what I say specifically because of who the people are, but of, because of who I am in the moment. Like if I have, I love going into things with a plan of what I'm going to say, but I also love like if things happen, uh, if a whole show happens where nothing planned uh, goes as I intended uh, and I just get to say a lot of new things, a lot mm-hmm. of, you know, things that I didn't even think were jokes, just like interesting things happen and interactions and connections and things arise. And uh, so I think that, I mean, ultimately I, I want to be myself for myself and then whoever is attracted to the, the me that I am and the things that the me that I'm being and doing, like that's the audience. Like I want to, like if you're, if you play jazz, like, yeah, you don't want to be like, I got to win over all the country fans. Like you're like, I want to be, if you want to be the best jazz player that you can ever play, like maybe it'd be great if like, if other people like the, the Congo of Mm -hmm. Of uh, of country, yeah, or the country of Congo. Um, <laughs> if that whatever in the analogy is like, hey, we really like like we don't know, we don't normally listen to jazz, yeah, but uh, but you're the best at j- you're so good at jazz. But you mostly are going to get people who like jazz. You want to become yeah. the best for the people who like the thing that you're doing, who like the genre that you are, and like in in comedy, everybody gets to be like your own. I mean, in music as well, you get to be the genre of yourself. Yeah. And so you're like, I'm like, I love uh, Paul F. Tompkins. And I think in one of his most recent specials, 
he, he opens up by saying, hi, I'm Paul F. Tompkins, and I do Paul F. Tompkins-based comedy. <laughs> and that's perfect. That's beautiful. Zach Sherman told me about the rabbi Zusia, uh, who one, I think, said something like, I'll paraphrase, he's like, I'm not worried that when I die, I will be judged by God saying, why weren't you more like Abraham? Why weren't you more like Moses? Yeah. I, I'm worried that he'll say, why weren't you more like Zeusia? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so we should like all be like Zeusia is the, me- the message <laughs> yeah. there. Uh, and yeah, we should all, I mean, the goal is to be as true to ourselves as possible, whether that means talking about your everyday experience or your philosophies, or whether it means that, you know, you have uh, silly characters that you manifest, uh, what, whatever it is, whoever you are, you can be the most that, and then there I will like be the character people. example. Oh, the, sure. The, because that's you essentially, specifically, intentionally not being you. Yes. And but, so so if, if being you is intentionally not being you, then be you. Yes. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I would also say that, you know, if you think of a character that, you know, that you're like, let's say like Sarah Silverman, you know, mm-hmm. used to say things uh, that were definitely not her serious intention, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and it would be clear that uh, that who who she was as a person was a person who didn't believe the literal thing she was saying. Uh, and so we know who she is as a person based on what she's saying, even though the thing she's right, saying right. is not literally who she is as a person, because... Working in negative space. Yeah, saying that you're a character, you know, if you're presenting yourself as a character, I mean, I guess maybe a more interesting example, or a sp- a- an interesting example of a, a kind of person is like, uh, if you're more like Andy Kaufman-like, and don't know, like, if you don't know who the person is, if all you have is what they're presenting, and, I mean, they maybe they know who they are. I Well, certainly... From from my studying Andy Kaufman, my uh, extensively for a long time, my conclusion was that he didn't know who he was. Fair, uh, and uh, and that's what that was all about. It was sort of like a mission to find himself, and that maybe never got fulfilled. I don't know. Maybe it did towards the end, but I think after the end it did. Yeah, definitely the after the end. Yeah, but that's what I think that was. I think that was somebody really struggling with identity, and trying desperately to find himself. Anyway, that's how I related to it at a certain point in my life where I was like, okay, I think this is what I'm doing. And yeah, whatever he was, doing, by he was doing, that's a valuable thing yeah. for you. Like, well, I, I like that, you know, seeing the world as we are or as we yeah. want to be or intend to be, you're, you're looking at him and being like, at least I hope that's what he's, I hope he's trying to find himself, yeah. you know, or yeah. whatever he's doing. I, can strive to find myself. Mm-hmm. So anyway, going back to finding yourself, uh, the sure. reason why I brought up, uh, the reason why I asked you about depression mm-hmm. was because one thing that I've always been curious about with you is this feeling I get that you hide your emotions, which I don't know if that's the first time you've ever heard that, but I assume it's not. Um, that makes me really sad to hear. Really? No. <laughs> That's a good line. But I, yeah, certainly you're not someone who, as they say, wears their heart on their sleeve. So I was curious if there was this emotional aspect. And then when you talked about how in your divorce you had these thoughts about, like, I'm supposed to be happy, that was kind of interesting to me because, first of all, it's very foreign to the way my brain has ever worked. Sure. Um, like I, I think I was always mentally telling myself, um, you don't deserve to be happy for a long time. So to hear somebody 
who's working under the assumption that you're supposed to be happy was fascinating. Sure. Um, but also, I, I wonder if there's this something from your childhood where you felt like you shouldn't be emotional. Um, that's a good question. I My first reaction was that uh, certainly on stage is different than off stage. And I think that a lot of people on stage do talk about, you know, their deep, like their, some say, darker, emotional, you know, the content that they're mining to be both maybe helping themselves progress as as a human, experiencing these things, processing these things, and also sort of, you know, like alchemizing them into like catharsis and potential joy for themselves and the audience. And that wasn't certainly where I started from, but I think that I've always, I think I've done that work for myself offstage. You know, like I've, I think I don't hide my emotions from, I, I've never thought of myself as hiding my emotions. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not saying that I never have, but I, that's not what I'm conceiving of, of course. Like, so if I am hiding them, I'm also hiding that I'm hiding them from myself. But I think more that I'm, like, I open up to people specifically in, you know, like my, I definitely don't hide my emotions from my girlfriend. I definitely don't hide my emotions from Zach. You know, there are certain people that I open up to, like if I have a negative, I I have like a number of very good friends that uh, I can talk to if I, you know, if I have a hard, if I have a hard breakup or a hard day, or uh, if something negative happens in the world or in my world, in my, you know, my experience personally, mm-hmm. whether it's, you know, on a micro or macro level, uh, I'm definitely, especially more and more now, I would say, uh, focus, like thinking about those things and striving to not push them away and not hide them and not think more like I used to, that I'm just supposed to be happy. Um, I think that, like growing up, I was encouraged like, hey, like, you know, my parents and grandmother and people were like, you're, you're like, you're supposed to go to school and be smart and achieve and also achieve at, you know, I think, yeah, I think I was led to believe that like happiness was a good, like a goal and like a default setting of like aspiration. Mm-hmm. Um, and that if you weren't feeling it, you know, I don't think I was like explicitly told like, you know, just smile, even if, you know, you're not feeling it. But maybe like society, I think society also has that message sometimes like, oh, don't, don't let people know. Yeah. Don't. They'll, they'll think, they'll know that they're like doing better and they're winning. And uh, I think it led me to not trust you for a long time until we'd been friends for a while. And I was like, okay, this is how I can relate to Mike. Um, I was, I was suspect of you because I was like, he's not showing anything. He's not showing his cards. Sure. I, th- I think like, I think that's in a way and not, you know, there's obviously much more to it with with the president, but I I think in a way, it's the fact that he doesn't let on emotion that freak people that freaks people out the most. You know, like like he doesn't seem sad when we call him names or like you know. Uh, oh yeah, and and more even more so, I think for him is that I mean this goes into different realms, but when he says like there more recently. The, he, he said that, I don't even know if that tape was real of like the, him on the bus saying, Mm -hmm. you know, misogynistic things about assaulting women. Uh, 
Like where in the, at the beginning he was like, I said it and I didn't mean it. Mm-hmm. And now he's like, I don't even know if that's real. Like, I really don't, he's like, even more than Andy Kaufman, like, I don't know what he's experiencing. Mm-hmm. I don't know, like, it doesn't, it seems like he is sad. It seems like I don't, he's, and by virtue of that, like, I think when people say I'm sad, like, that's at least a step towards, you know, some kind of understanding and connection. Like, there's no connect, I, I who's connected? How can, mm-hmm. is anybody connected to him? So I do understand what you're saying about, me in the past and and probably aspects of myself now because I don't share like my sadnesses with ever I, I mean and I you will. don't have to. I oh, mean yeah. I, I'm I'm not I'm not suggesting that this is a fault of yours. I'm just suggesting that it's something that I picked up on that sure. I was curious about. That's all. I think that I mean one like so one guideline I have is I like to focus on the positives. I like to also address reality so that when there are non positives uh, I like to, you know, name them and sit in them and process them and go through them and talk about them with, you know, with whoever uh, is the person to talk about them with, whether it's myself, a loved one. That's it, myself or a loved one, and mm-hmm. or just a loved one. I'm also a loved one. <laughs> yeah. uh, but also, like, you know, in this in this context, I like I'm happy. I'm always happy to answer questions. I'm always happy to be honest about my experience. Uh, which does include, you know, ups and downs. And even if it's, I guess here's the, here's maybe an interesting question of like, you know, there's ultimately, you know, we started somewhere and we end somewhere that seems similar, like, you know, non-existence, non-existence, or, you know, the matter and energy that makes us, us was somewhere and will be somewhere. But then in the middle, there's us. We start from, some level, let's call it zero, and we end at some level, let's call it zero, or infinity and infinity. Mm-hmm. And then in the middle, like, there's ups and downs, and then ultimately it does all get potentially evened out. Like, you go up, and then you come down. You exist, and then you don't. Mm-hmm. The effects come, the effects go. Um, and so during all of that, my, I guess a question that I have is, what's what's good to focus on? Is it good to strive for, you know, like... Because I can't think about everything all the time. So it's nice to focus on uh, even, you know, whether I'm happy or sad, whether wherever I am, it's, I enjoy focusing on uh, the positives. Being Like when I'm, when I'm sad, it's also true that I'm like, oh, I have this friend that I love. I have this artist that I respect. I have this music that makes me feel the way that I want to feel and can feel and not hiding the emotion, but, uh, and not diluting it, but just existing, coexisting with it. So it's that it's not only the the sadness, that it's not only the difficulty. Like there's a, I think Thich Nhat Hanh, a, a Buddhist writer, thinker, philosopher, he, he has a book called How to Love. And I remember there's part of it where he talks about how, you know, if you drop, uh, I think a, you know, a, one drop of like blood or poison or some, something in like a cup of water, will, you know, taint it and you shouldn't drink it. But if you drop that same droplet in a a running river, like it's unnoticeable and it's, Mm -hmm. you're fine. And so the goal is to have your heart be not like limited with the water of love, like a cup, but to have it be like constantly, you know, flowing and churning and having, you know, just more present so that, uh, 
Uh, or sometimes, you know, another water analogy is like the mind is like a still pond and then, you know, different emotions and thoughts and experiences will like drop ripples into it. But uh, eventually those ripples can, you know, smooth out and the goal can be to, you know, for the Buddha, a Buddha mind is not one that never experiences ripples, but one that is able to have the, the ripples dissipate more quickly. Hmm. And so for me, uh, and so the question I, I, I think I started saying, the question is, is it good to focus on the positive or is it good to focus on, quote unquote, the reality for a, the lack of a better term? Like if there is, you know, one positive thing and one negative thing, is it good to think about them, giving them equal weight? Like if you get, you know, say you have a YouTube video and it has one positive comment and one negative comment. Uh, I think it's better to think about the positive comment more than the negative comment, partially because I think that the negative comment comes from somebody who doesn't know you or, uh, or, or your content mm-hmm. as much as the person who has the positive comment. Like, you know, just think of if somebody is a jazz aficionado, they know a lot of jazz. I think they're more likely to leave. I mean, number one, people who like your stuff is, are less likely to leave comments. Mm-hmm. So there's likely that there's lots of people liking things, not telling you that they like it for every person that does tell you that they don't like it which is more, I think, telling me that they yeah. don't like themselves. I'm like, why are you spending, why are they spending time? Like, so they had a negative experience right. and now they're perpetuating that negative experience by having it again and having it at you. And that's a decision that I don't resonate with. I'm like, if somebody, like I'm not going out and telling every person who uh, said a negative thing to me, like, hey, you said a negative thing to me and now I'm saying one to you. Like, I, yeah. because <laughs> there is no, you know, one like, static reality like reality is ever shifting and we are creating slash discovering it at all points so i think that by focusing on the positives it creates more positives and when i think about the things that make me feel good even at times when i'm not always completely feeling good that does add to the mixture and makes it so that i do ultimate the reality becomes i feel better that sounds healthy i it's it works for me yeah. so far. You and I had worked on a book at one point. Oh, yeah. What do you remember about it? Uh, I, I still love the idea. Uh, the, the idea that came when you, you did my podcast at a guy's house, uh, and he had like a guitar on the wall, and you were there, and Dan Hirshon was the other guest. Mm-hmm. And I remember somebody was like, hey, who plays that guitar? What's with that guitar? And the, the ho- our host said, like, oh, that's just a conversation piece. And you said, like, I don't see why you, anyone ever needs a conversation piece uh, because you, you always could talk about anything at any time. You don't need to be looking at a thing. You could just literally, the world is full of ideas always, and you could pick one. And Dan Hirshon said, he's like, I like hat. Like, I never know what, you know, that seems like too too broad, too wide. Like I could talk about anything like what, how, ah, you yeah. know, it's like anxiety inducing. So he's like, I like when he's like, now we're talking about a guitar. Now we're talking about this very concept. And so you, I think you granted that you're like, that makes sense, mm-hmm. but you don't, you still need the things you're like, you just need like a list of things. Yeah. And so then we came up with the idea for a book of uh, conversation pieces. Yeah. Just, and that's all you need is the book. You never need another, <laughs> we're like, we'll come up with the idea of all the things that you could possibly, you know, and what? guidelines for the conversations to get them started. Yes. So, yeah. So that's much more detailed memory than I have, but it's great. That came to mind. And there was this part that I'd written in the book about a meta thing about how like getting rid of stuff is good. And we're in this time where like everything goes in the cloud 
So this book could exist in a cloud too. Oh, yeah. And, and now um, it still really only exists in the cloud of our memory yeah. and all the podcasts <laughs> where we talk about it. Yeah. And so, a few files on Google Drive. So, so like the chapter that we were uh, working on was about all the stuff you can get rid of. Like your media, your books, and like oh yeah, and ultimately maybe they'll find a way to put furniture in a cloud. But <laughs> uh, so I was thinking about that recently when um, my friend Ralphie May passed away. Sure, and uh, he's in the cloud. He's in the cloud. Yeah, and I was thinking like, well, ultimately, like the way we're even heading as we get more intelligent as people is away from physicality. Like physicality is worse than uh, spirituality, I was thinking. like Because the spirit is eternal, but the body is, is limited. The body breaks down at a certain point. It starts to fall apart. And all this stuff starts to fall apart, which is why it's better to own media in the cloud than physical media, because it, the likelihood is that it, would, it won't wear out. You know, it'll, it'll be there forever, whereas like a record will wear out. So I was thinking about like how physical reality is inferior to non-physical reality. So death can almost be looked at as an upgrade. I understand what you're saying. I I think that the only pushback I would give you is by the vir- by virtue of something being eternal doesn't mean that it's better. Like that it's that it lasts. You know, like I remember. Uh, seeing like driving by a thing once that like on the side of the road, there was a big sign that said like free manure. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, Oh, people love free things, <laughs> but uh, not just by virtue <laughs> of it being free. Doesn't mean it's a good thing. Yeah. And so like, you know, if something, if some experience that you didn't like was eternal, <laughs> you know, like white nationalism, the KKK, right. like, you know, if that, that existing forever as well, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in some way that you could imagine being like, Oh, that wouldn't be yeah the best. But, uh, but I think so. I think that that's only to say, I think the physical, the ephemeral, uh, is also valuable. Like the same way that you know, when you write stand up, you're like, oh wow, this story is evergreen. I can tell this, mm-hmm. you know, for years and years. Versus an experience and a show where somebody says something and you notice something, and all the circumstances uh, collaborate to create an experience that could only happen in that night, in that room, in that space. Mm-hmm. And even to tell people about it later would be m- missing something because they weren't there. Uh, and you could express like a cool thing happened. Uh, but it would be like telling somebody, I ate a delicious thing. And be like, oh, wow, like I'm really glad. I, I feel good that you ate that delicious thing. But mm-hmm. but you, we didn't both eat the delicious thing. Right. Only one of us did. And then the experience is now you know an analog degrading after that. But that beautiful ephemeral moment that everyone shared in that moment was itself a kind of infinite eternal thing uh, that, you know, if now we're getting to the idea of like time being sort of, you know, nonlinear, a construct, uh, whatever that can mean for you. But I think that, you know, an evergreen thing like, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, is not necessarily superior to a moment. Yeah. I think that's true. I don't know if it negates what I said about oh, no, physicality, no. but yeah, like I guess I mean my analogy is that, you know, physicality is like the ephemeral moment. Uh-huh. And so this is like while we have our bodies, uh while we are our bodies, while these bodies are bodying, 
Like they are, you know, they are beautiful. Even as they decay, they are, you know, decaying in the the only way that makes sense. There's a, a poet named Mark Nepo who has a book called, I think it's called The Book of Awakening or Awakenings uh, that my girlfriend and I read from most mornings. Uh, and it has like a, a page a day or like a chapter a day where it's sort of like a little, a fable or an affirmation, a meditation, uh, a philosophical, like a uh, beautiful sort of story or lesson. And there's one one day where he talks about a flower and he says like a flower opens at its own rate uh, and you can't rush it. A flower can't rush. Uh, and it's beautiful at every stage. It's beautiful at every stage of its opening. And if it could rush it, then it would like tear and it wouldn't be having the the experience of being the flower as the flower is. is. Mm-hmm. And that he says, our, our day can be the same. You know, you can only do, like by the end of the day, you will have done everything that you did do. You will have done, in a way, everything that you could do. Like if you if you could have done more, I mean, like, oh, I could have done like one more push-up, but you didn't. Uh, and so in a sense, like looking back on it, you know, this is how many push-ups you were going to do. You, you can't, or whatever it is, whatever experiences you were going to have, like you can only, you will only do one day's work one day's worth of activity in that one day. And you're Mm -hmm. like the flower and it's beautiful at every stage. And it involves, you know, aging and growing and experiencing, you know, the, the, the moving from, from nothing to something to nothing from everything to a different form of everything Mm -hmm. to everything again. And, uh, I definitely do want to support and endorse and encourage, uh, and appreciate the idea of like, Death, certainly, like, when you say death could be seen as an upgrade, Mm -hmm. like, absolutely. Uh, It's certainly not, I would say, a downgrade. Uh, It's potentially just, you know, sort of a a lateral move as well. Like, you know, we've we've come from, you know, some unknown, and now we're in some kind of a different unknown, uh, a more known unknown. And then we go back to or forward to uh, the next, again, similar... Similarly unknown, unknown. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in some ways, I think the known is valuable and the unknown is, you know, mythical and mystical and potentially scary, but also, you know, we came from it and we go back to it. So other than the fact that we were born screaming and so maybe that was why, because it was terrifying, but yeah. uh, we don't have to. People are born screaming and often die screaming. It's true. Because uh, we don't like change. Yeah. Transition is difficult. Yeah. I was thinking about how, like, sometimes, like, going, I don't, not that I don't like, but, like, going to bed and waking up are their own kind of challenges. But I love both being asleep and being awake. Mm-hmm. And so my hope is that, analogically, being alive and being dead are, like, chill, <laughs> uh, are yeah. calm in their way, or at least, you know, and, but that the transitions are the one, like, oh, God, I don't want to. Yeah, I don't want to. I don't want to be born. I feel like life is almost like, in comedy terms, it's like a set. You have a, you have a set amount of time to make an impact on a certain amount of people. So, like going back to like, who cares what the size of the crowd is? Yeah, it's like you have this time that you're here, and the people that you'll affect will be the ones you affect, and that will change the collective energy of this. Space, which is the world, which is life. The universe. The yeah. universe. Yeah, you will like, certainly have an effect on yourself. Yeah. And uh, and then at the end of your set, you see the light. Yeah, and then that's it. But 
But I, I think that's the that's maybe the point of life is just sort of to come in, affect the energy in the way that you'll affect it, hopefully in a good way. Um, and as you progress through it, you figure out how to affect it more and more positively if you're doing it right, I think. And then you finish your set and you go on and uh, you left you left the room the way you left it, you know, with whatever energy you brought. And that energy combined with all the other people who brought their set yeah. is is what, what's left at the end of a generation, you know? I like it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a fan of uh, being loving <laughs> uh, as uh, as putting positive energy in the world or in your own life, just, uh, you know, being open and understanding and willing to learn and know that you're wrong and being forgiving of others and yourself as need be and can be being, uh, you know, caring, having positive intention, uh, for, you know, other people, for yourself, for actions, for desire, uh, and yeah, just being generally, you know, treating, treating yourself as kindly as possible and treating others as kindly as possible. Yeah. I think that's a good place to transition into philosophy. What do you think? Definitely. <laughs> All right, cool. So let's see who Alex picked out for you here. Alex chose Oscar Wilde. What do you know about Oscar Wilde? Oh, uh, my girlfriend has just been going reading all of his works. All of them? Wow. Like, I mean, she got a, I think, he wrote Picture of Dorian Gray. That sounds familiar. I th- unless I'm wildly off i believe that's uh that's correct and then she got a coll- she got that and she got a collection of like his essays and quotes and you know some fiction some nonfiction. and so she like she's read me she read me some of it and i like i looked over some of it and a lot of it is uh so i i've not like directly engaged extensively but i have been peripherally recently aware and uh he seems uh smart and like Kind of, uh, I guess, uh, like kind of like dark, like sarcastic, like sort of sardonic and uh, like maybe cynical. But uh, what I what I know so far, I like. Yeah. Well, that'd be funny if that was the connection that Alex said, well, Mike's girlfriend likes him (laughs) and likes Oscar Wilde. So, well, there must be some similarity there. if She likes both people. Who could say? Uh, Alex says what you have in common is because Mike's jokes are. Pithy turns of phrase. Mm-hmm. I picked a philosopher who spoke that way. That's mm. nice. I like that. Cool. Yeah, I know that you're very uh, linguistic, as is Zach. With uh, you, you find a lot of wordplay fun. Actually, I recently listened to my interview with Zach, and he said that you guys had come up with something where instead of saying "go on," you said "goon." It's true. We we have done that, and uh, and that you guys are always finding like little word games and things like that. We are. It's one way that we have fun. Yeah. <laughs> so that's a good connection, I guess. Certainly. Um, he says some of Oscar Wilde's famous quotes, and these are not the quotes that we will be discussing mm-hmm. at length. I understand. Um, are I can resist everything except temptation. Sure. True friends stab you in the front. Classic. <laughs> And always forgive your enemies. Nothing annoys them so much. Oh yeah, he's great. Yeah, those are all pretty pretty spot on. Except I don't I don't know if true friends stab you at all. Uh, I think it's you know if they stab you, it's in the front. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, but I then mean, they might not be true friends. 
Uh, yeah, I mean, at that point, you can make a new assessment. Yeah, I guess unless you're really into being stabbed. Oh but, yeah, if you if you ask them to. Yeah, <laughs> then then maybe consensual front stabbing. So Alex's synopsis on Oscar Wilde, before I read you about him and his life from Wikipedia, sure, is that Wilde claims aesthetic beauty is one of the highest goods, evidenced by our seeking it so badly. Beauty is so good, it defies explanation as to why it's good. Simply, beauty is just beautiful, because art is the pursuit of beauty, which is not connected to morality. Art is an amoral practice. It should not have other agendas than to be beautiful. Hence, art should not be criticized on other terms besides its skill. An example, a joke must be funny. It doesn't matter if it's offensive. So what do you make of that? Uh, I think it's a strong viewpoint uh, that is difficult to agree with completely. Um, Like I would say, sometimes people, uh, you know, Artists are human beings, mm-hmm. and so sometimes an artist, as a as a human being, does things that we would find objectionable. Be like, I don't, I wouldn't will a human being to act that way, you know, to cause others suffering. Uh, and so, I think that art is also something that a human being does, and art can have uh, effects. I think that, um, I don't think that you know. Art should be censored, uh, but I do think that, like the same way that you and I talked about, we can't say everything. I think Todd Glass has said a thing like this. Uh, who I love his comedy and I love him as a person. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, Todd and, said it all. <laughs> <laughs> he said something, you know, and um, he might not be the only person who said this, but I definitely associate this with like his essence. Is uh, like, of course, you can't you can say anything you want to, but what do you want to say? Mm-hmm. And I don't think that there, I disagree also that, I disagree that physical beauty is the highest form of even beauty itself. Mm-hmm. Like, especially coming from a world where, like, I'm much more into, like, musical beauty than, you know, a painting. Sure. And we also, I think, made an interesting argument against physicality. Sure. Oh, yeah, definitely. Sure. And, I mean, there are also, you know, people, some people are vi- physically blind and they can experience, I think the same kind of transcendent beauty that other people can. I think there's all different avenues. Mm -hmm. There's many paths up the same mountain, you know, many fingers pointing at the same moon. Uh, And so I definitely don't think that I, I would say that art's only job is not like, it's not the truth that art's only job is to be the most beautiful. Uh, for whatever that means. I think, first, you know, obviously there's certainly some comedians and some artists who, like, their art is uh, explicitly, like, political and oriented about social justice. And if it's if it's comedy, I mean, it's important for it to be funny. And if it's, uh, but even, you know, not every, like, if you look at Carlin and, you know, who some people think of as, like, the best or one of the most influential, uh, a lot of his specials have parts of them in it that aren't as funny as like other as as other parts of his comedy. Mm-hmm. Like if it was just be like, well, this comedy has to be the most comedic comedy. Like I think he doesn't agree with that, and I think most people don't agree with that. Sure. So I would say I like that Oscar Wilde is like expressing this extreme view, mm-hmm. uh, but I also I think that it's a guideline that there are also like the same way that 
on the Sabbath, uh, Jews are meant not to work. But if a Jewish doctor is walking down the street on the Sabbath and sees a person that would die if they didn't do their doctor work, then they're like, let's uh, put aside the guideline of uh, just follow the rules of the Sabbath because saving a life is more important right. than following that rule. And so I think uh, even if it is a, a, a rule or a guideline to make the art as you know beautiful as possible or make the comedy as funny as possible, like some people would say like, oh, you can make the comedy as funny as possible. Uh, if you do somebody else's joke, like mm-hmm. that's funnier sure. than your joke. Well, that's not what you're supposed to do. Yeah. And uh, sometimes you come up with a joke that is against what you believe, but it's so funny. What do you do? It's just like a, it, it's wasted usually. I mean, right. yeah, you, everybody gets to make their own decision. I think Oscar mm-hmm. Wilde would say just, you do the joke because that's, that's yeah. the important thing. And I would say that, that you can't separate uh, entirely the art and the artist. Mm-hmm. Uh I mean, you can, but then you just have an ist, and that's not anything. <laughs> I like that. I never heard that. Oh, I just, I never said it before. Yeah. yeah, that's the big question now about separating the art and the artist in light of all the scandals going on and everything. It is a question. Um, it really makes people think like, oh, I really like that art. I really don't like that artist. Like, and, and how can I reconcile the two? I mean, you don't have to. Yeah. You, you can, you can not like the artist and like the art. You can also uh, focus on other art uh, created by artists that you don't know horrendous things about. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) I recommend that. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting because like um, sometimes the art of the artist reflects the thoughts that may have led to them raping someone, you know, you know, I mean, it could be, I mean, though, like there's definitely, I think there's no simplicity in how to look at it, like, right. for example, you know, people look at Louis C.K. and they're like, well, look at look at the things he was talking about. Of course he was doing those things. Mm-hmm. And then people look at Cosby and say, like, well, look at the things he was talking about. He was the cleanest guy who <laughs> yeah. never talked about anything like that. So, of course, he was doing it to hide those things. Yeah. You know? yeah people yeah. doing the exact opposite things in their art, but sure. similar, uh, objectionable, yeah. you know. Not to say that they did the same things, but they did things. It's all on a spectrum. Mm-hmm. Everything is on a spectrum. Yes. <laughs> all right. Uh, Oscar Wilde, born Oscar Fingal O. Flaherty Wills Wilde. Wow. I think Lot that's of- how you say that. Sounds good. Uh, October 16th, 1854, in Dublin, Ireland, which makes me think it's more like a Flaherty Wills. Oh, yeah, you got it. Um, died November 30th, 1900, at age 46 in Paris, France. Ah, oh, pretty young. He was an author, a poet, and a playwright. And after writing in different forms throughout the 1880s, he began, oh, the original, that was the 80s, the big eight, original boom of the 80s. Was I love the 80s. <laughs> he became one of London's most popular playwrights in the early 1890s. He's best remembered for his epigrams and plays, his novel, The Picture of Dorian Gray, as you mentioned. Phew. uh, As well as the circumstances of his imprisonment and early death. Wilde's parents were successful Anglo-Irish intellectuals in Dublin. Their son became fluent in French and German in early life. At university, Wilde read greats. He proved himself to be an outstanding classicist. First at Dublin, then at Oxford. What's a classicist? Somebody who's just very classical. Uh, I think 
the classics uh, might be like Latin and Greek and that sort of stuff. Okay. So a classicist might. Classicist, yes. I think that's that could be right, but that is I, right. I'm not positive uh, of exactly what one is other than somebody who studies the classics. Okay. It's not just somebody who like knows like a lot of like Pink Floyd or whatever. Like, that's correct. I don't yeah. believe that's right for Oscar Wilde. It's classic, man. It's yeah. classic. Oh, yeah. He became known for his involvement in the rising philosophy of atheism, uh, led by two of his tutors, Walter Pater and John Ruskin. After university, Wilde moved to London into fashionable culture and social circles as a spokesman for atheism. Sure. Uh, he tried his hand at various literary activities. He, pl- he published a book on poems, lectured in the United States and Canada on the new English Renaissance in art, and then returned to London, where he worked prolifically as a journalist. Known for his biting wit, flamboyant dress, and glittering, glittering conversational skills. I've never heard of conversational skills glittering. referred to as glittering. Sure. Okay, he's got glittering conversational skills. I like it. Yeah. Wilde became one of the best-known personalities of his day. At the turn of the 1890s, he redefined his ideas about the supremacy of art in a series of dialogues and essays as incorporated themes of decadence, duplicity, and beauty into what would be his only novel, The Picture of Dorian Gray, 1890. The opportunity to construct aesthetic details uh, precisely and combine them with larger social themes, drew Wilde to write drama. He wrote Salome in 1891 in French while in Paris, but it was refused a license for English due to an absolute prohibition on the portrayal of biblical subjects on the English stage. Huh. Unperturbed, Wilde produced four society comedies in the early 1890s, which made him one of the most successful playwrights of late Victorian London. At the height of his fame and success, while the importance of being earnest, um, 1895, was still being performed in London, Wilde had the Marquis of Queensbury prosecuted for criminal libel. The Marquis, the Marquis, that's how you say it, Marquis? That could be, yeah, um, sounds good. Was the father of Wilde's lover, Lord Alfred Douglas. Uh, the libel trial unearthed evidence that caused Wilde to drop his charges and led to his own arrest and trial of gross indecency with men. After two more trials, he was convicted and sentenced to two years, hard labor, the maximum penalty, and was jailed from 1895 to 1897. During his last year in prison, he wrote De Profundis, published posthumously in 1905, a long letter which discusses his spiritual journey through his trials, forming a dark counterpoint to his earlier philosophy of pleasure. Upon his release, he left immediately for France, never to return to Ireland or Britain. There he wrote his last work, The Ballad of Reading Gaol, in 1898, a long poem commemorating the harsh rhythms of prison life. He died destitute in Paris at the age of 46. Ooh, bummer. Yeah, quite a life. I guess his own trial turned on him. I mean, it seems that way. You got to be careful before you pursue charges on somebody. Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess you got to be 
careful if you're gay in a time where it's criminal to be gay. Yeah. Um, by November 25th, 1900, Wilde had developed meningitis, then called cerebral meningitis. Um, and uh, I think that is what killed him. That makes sense. Yeah. Sounds pretty bad. Yeah. Is that when he died? 1900. Yes, yeah. that's correct. So that's a bit on Oscar Wilde. Thanks for sharing. Yeah. Uh, did any of that bring up anything for you? or? I mean, uh, I guess I'm grateful that we have made some progress in in society, that if he were alive today, he probably wouldn't have gone to jail mm-hmm. in where he lived or where we live. Yeah. Though there are obviously places in the world today where that does happen and worse. And so there's certainly still work to be done. So yeah, that is a, uh, something that's uh, not, I wanna say near and dear to my heart, but it makes me, you know, like uh, homophobia is a, a horrendous thing that uh, is one of my not favorites. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm, I'm anti all the, all the isms. Mm-hmm. Uh, not then, Judaism. I uh, know nope, all of them. And uh, really, no, no. I, uh, <laughs> Judaism, uh, you know, has uh, some intersection with some of the, you know, there intersects with sexism at times. And uh, as a an anti, yeah, I'm anti. I'm anti the bad ones. Yeah, <laughs> you get it. Um, I'm fine with people being Jewish. Okay, <laughs> I am. Yeah, according to many, including uh, some aspects of myself. Jewish as well. Yeah. I'm more um, tempted to read um, the portrait of Dorian Gray because it was his only sure. novel. Like, if there were many, I wouldn't be as interested. But because it's the only one, yeah. I mean, it seems like, oh, I could have said, I could say I read all of his novels, you know. You definitely by doing can. Only one, if I you like. want to, yeah. <laughs> That's what you got out of it. That makes sense. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> A good way to look impressive. Oh, yeah. With only reading one I've book. read the entire oeuvre <laughs> of. Uh, Oscar Wilde's novels. So I have here a paragraph that Alex picked out from something written by Oscar Wilde. And uh, if you would uh, be so kind as to read it, we can then discuss it. Those who find ugly meanings in beautiful things are corrupt without being charming. Those who find beautiful meanings in beautiful things are the cultivated. For these, there is hope. They are the elect to whom beautiful things mean only beauty. There is no such thing as a moral or immoral book. Books are well-written or badly written. That is all. So it sort of reiterates the first thing. Yeah. And I, what's no, I kind of most noteworthy to me here is that there is also potentially, he doesn't talk about people who find beautiful meaning in ugly things which I think is something that we talked about a little bit Mm -hmm. with the way that, you know, a lot of, I feel like that is the source of a lot of art, Uh, at least, you know, the art that isn't necessarily visual, like art that's, you know, comedy or music or potentially visual. Like I'm sure there are, you know, painters and sculptors who also mine what, I guess the question is, you know, when he talks about beauty and ugliness, like, is he only speaking of like, the visual aesthetic, mm-hmm. it it seems like maybe, but that that seems like so sur- surface oriented, yeah. yeah. Uh, because I mean, the greatest, 
even, you know, if you look at something beautiful or if you listen to something beautiful, whatever beautiful means to you, like the enjoyment that you have is not from your eyes. It's from your brain. It's from the internal reaction that you have. And that reaction can be had, you know, from a joke being told with your eyes closed, Mm -hmm. you know, music being played, looking at a beautiful sunset or piece of art or, you know, human being that you're attracted to, uh, a feel, you know, like somebody massaging you, somebody, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, being with somebody physically, sexually, romantically, like all of these, you know, there's so many ways to experience like the concept of internal beauty Mm -hmm. that like for him to seemingly focus on external beauty as the only route to internal beauty or the only route to like beauty with a capital B uh, seems to me uh, like it's maybe I'm missing something. I mean, we only have what we have, yes. so we can only discuss it yeah. based on that. Based on that paragraph, I would say, what about, I mean, I think finding beauty in ugly things is also valuable. Mm-hmm. Uh, if not. And then how can you define them as ugly things? Great, great point. And I mean, I guess one thing where I, I would find redemption potential is, uh, and I still like him, but like when he says there's no, th- no such thing as a moral or immoral book, I think there's a reading of that that makes sense because the, the, the art itself is not necessarily, you know, charged with containing like, I mean, even like letters, images, like all of these things uh, are only what we interpret them as and what we agree that they mean. And so uh, I would say that morality comes from, you know, human interaction and communication. Mm-hmm. So that, uh, I mean, like, even, you know, we talked about Sarah Silverman, you know, as an example of somebody who could create a joke that maybe could be misunderstood if you didn't know, if you didn't like know who she was and what she really believed, it would definitely be, I think, flawed to say that her jokes are immoral. Uh, and so, yeah, I think that I think that saying art uh, has is amoral makes sense, mm-hmm. and that uh, if you want to talk about morality, it only has to do with human uh, human interaction and human additions to. And and yeah, and I think human interpretation because yes. I think you could interpret moral writing immorally if that was your intention or if it was to justify your own beliefs, and you could also do the reverse. Uh, one, one larger point is that you yeah. know when when Oscar Wilde says uh, like the beautiful things to the, to some people mean only beauty uh, with a capital B, there it seems like there's some you know allusion to some kind of objective beautiful truth, some objective uh, like highest attainable reality of beauty. Whereas I think in my experience and knowing that my experience is not the only experience that in my experience, my experience is not the only experience. (laughs) That is to say like, you know, you have the things that you find beautiful and you find less beautiful or gross and Kylie has hers and I have mine. Like, you know, some people love horror movies and I don't. And for some people, you know, especially, you know, if we go down a different 
road or a similar road in a different direction, or I guess it doesn't matter the analogy, but for some people, uh, like there could be jokes about, let's say, uh, you know, either cancer or sexual assault or, you know, difficult real world experiences that people may have gone through. And it's not to say that like, there could be one person who has survived cancer or is going through cancer and loves hearing jokes about it because it's, it helps them, it helps them. It yeah. helps them feel seen and understood. And they're like, oh, wow, there's somebody else having my experience. Great example. Yeah. And, but somebody else could be like, I Trigger. don't want to be yeah. reminded of it. Sure. Uh, and that doesn't mean that, that that art itself is, again, it's Oscar Wilde is right here, that that art is not itself immoral or moral. It is yeah. the art uh, I, I guess I could, you, one could say that, I mean, and if he could, I, I think he might, I don't know if he would agree. Let's say he would say that an artist could be immoral or moral or could take actions that were moral or immoral. If, if somebody intentionally causes suffering that a person doesn't want to receive, that seems like, you know, a fairly simple definition of immoral that we can work with. So if an artist shows art, like, you know, I have some jokes about the Holocaust that are not meant to make light of the Holocaust, uh, a terrible, horrible, real thing. But some of the, I've done some of the jokes on TV and like many people like them. And then my grandmother tells me that lots of her friends in Florida, her old Jewish friends, don't like them. They have a very different experience yeah. with the Holocaust. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think that that's my, my final, or at least the, the point that I wanted to make is that there is no specific objectivity in a lot of art or mm -hmm. beauty or morality, even, you know, on the, in these terms, mm -hmm. uh, other than I think, you know, for some, if I had to come up with an objective universal morality, uh, I would say be kind and loving. Uh, but also I think it wouldn't be kind and loving to say that I have an objective universal, universal morality. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's where it always gets shady with morality. Um, I mean, and then be to say, I think being kind and loving is good. Like, like to whom and how and what circumstances, yeah. uh, you know, like I'm vegan and not everybody is. And I'm like, oh yeah, being kind and loving to, uh, the animals, uh, who are not experiencing the best situation, uh, to put it mildly, mm -hmm. Um, but other people are like, who would also agree, it's good to be kind and loving, but do eat meat, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, there were probably people, you know, hundreds of years ago who uh, existed in a time of slavery that would be like, oh, yeah, it's good to be kind and loving. But uh, this horrendous thing is also happening. Yeah, yeah. I mean, not everybody all the time thinks it's good to be kind and loving, but I mean, and some people are like, it's good to be kind and loving, like to my family, to my country, mm -hmm. to my religion, to my yeah. race. Yeah, within a bubble. Yes. I mean, and we all do exist in various bubbles. Yeah. Um, and it's difficult to, I mean, I think it's great. I, I like continuing to ex expand the bubble to include as many beings as possible. That's a good philosophy. For, for yeah, love and kindness. Yeah, yeah. And the other thing that made me, this made me think of is how beauty societally changes. Like if you look at, Old paintings. Oh yeah, um, larger Every, women yeah. were considered more beautiful. Like oh yeah, so beauty plus time can equal ugly. Like tragedy plus time equals comedy. Right. <laughs> or or ugly plus time can equal beauty. Yeah. Yeah. So 
Yeah, it, it, there seems like some some context is desirable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, beauty is not forever. Even beautiful things over time are not seen as beautiful, even if they're preserved in their current state of beauty. Except for the infinitely, eternally existing spirit of love that is all that there really is in the universe from the beginning to the end, which there is none of. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll go with that. Thanks. Um, we have some quotes. Should uh, I read these quotes? Yes, please. Beauty is a form of genius, is higher indeed than genius, as it needs no explanation. Beauty is a form of genius. It's higher than genius. See, I don't know. I don't, I don't know how he defines genius. I mean, well, basically, unless this statement, this statement requires some more explanation. So it's clearly, by his own definition, not a genius statement. <laughs> yeah. Uh, next one. Yeah. The artist is the creator of beautiful things. To reveal art and conceal the artist is art's aim. That's interesting. Like that is a an interesting context to take all of this in because, mm-hmm. I mean, we have been talking about, you know, separation of the art and the artist. Sure, that's what I was thinking. But also, especially, I mean, as stand-up comedians, like that's one of the one art form where it's certainly not required. Like if you're doing a character or something, uh, to but the to not separate. But so many comedians today are focusing on the art coming like um, directly, like the art and the artist are much more connected Mm -hmm. in comedy because the art is often about, you know, from the artist of the artist, you know, by the artist delivered, you know, you are the, the writer, the actor, the, you know, the performer, the director, you are in a way the art, the artist in comedy in a way is the art in a way that, Mm. you know, that a sculptor is not their sculpture. Yeah. I thought that, with Louis C.K., that almost what made it more egregious was that he was selling authenticity to people. Sure. Um, he specifically was selling authenticity in that what he was going out there being was like, I'm putting it all out there. I'm the guy who's laying it all down, the good, the bad. And then everybody was like, okay, cool. I like this. I can accept this because, and not just accept, but I can enjoy this because even if it's things that he's saying that I'm uncomfortable with, I really respect the fact that he's being so open and sincere with all of his life to us. And then when people were like, wait a minute, he, he wasn't. wasn't, he wasn't, it was like they were sold like, it was like a snake oil salesman, you know, it was like, um, okay, I can't, I can't forgive now because in a way they felt betrayed. I mean, and of course the biggest betrayal is, you know, that which the women who he victimized. Oh, without question. Were, yeah, yeah, yeah. Experiencing. I mean, I didn't yeah. even bring it up because I feel like that's self-explanatory. But Just sure, wanted to yes. put it out there for, yeah, yeah, yeah. for sure. They they experienced something worse than the people who Louis C.K. lied to by pretending to be authentic. Yes, of course. But yes, but, it is a different, I mean, a, an, an additional layer of things. I'm just talking about like how the public reacted to it and why I think they reacted sure. as strongly as they did. Not just because of what he did was was horrible, but because there was this other layer um, where they felt betrayed in the process. Sure. Um, I think the same is probably true with Bill Cosby in the reverse, because he he also was inauthentic in what he sold. He sold yes this like um, 
fatherly. Yeah. 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 The, he was present, he was presenting himself in a way and Louis was presenting himself in a way and they both wanted everyone to think of themselves the way that they wanted to be presented. Right. Uh, but in fact, they did both want to conceal either by lying outright or lying subtly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think with, with Bill Cosby also, it's not just that he had painted this picture for us, but it's that he went beyond the art um, to preach morality. That's true. Like A fine point as well. Yeah, like I think... Pull up your pants! Yeah. Yeah. People would have been like, okay, look, you know, he played a character, but he's an artist, and artists are messed up, and blah, blah, blah. Oh, yeah. But he's it's, it's like, wait a minute. No, he didn't just stop there. He no. also lectured us. He was like, you know, the kinds of politicians that, you know, right-wing family values, you know, people that are, you know, anti-gay, and then are found to be, uh, you know, I mean, not that they're, it would be great if just... They, if a, if they were gay and were gay, then great. Mm-hmm. But then they're out like destroying the lives of gay people while also secretly, you know, uh, getting uh, like paying for gay prostitutes, mm-hmm. and uh, which also I, I'm glad for gay prostitutes to be paid. That's uh, <laughs> uh, a fair a fair wage is important for everyone. Um, but yeah, it's obviously hypocrisy while you're you know while you're causing. You're causing suffering and claiming the moral high ground mm-hmm. when, in fact, you are not operating from that moral high ground. Yeah. that's. I think that makes it much more egregious than if it had just happened. Well, according to Oscar Wilde, he said, to reveal art and conceal the artist is art's aim. Uh, that's what these guys were doing. Yeah. Well. They were concealing the artist. <laughs> the human. Yeah. Uh, and the final quote. We can forgive a man for making a useful thing as long as he does not admire it. The only excuse for making a useless thing is that one admires it intensely. All art is quite useless. There's a lot going on here. Yeah, I might need you to reread that. We can forgive a man for making a useful thing as long as he does not admire it. Okay, let's unpack that. I don't get that at all. Uh, I'm not sure. It depends what kind of useful thing he's talking about, because then he goes on to say art is useless. So is he talking about, like, an invention? Like, I mean, I guess the the thing it evokes for me is, like, if somebody, you know, let something speak for itself is sort of his, one of his tropes, one yeah. of his spiels, uh, you know, like to reveal the art, but conceal the artist. Like, mm-hmm. so if somebody's like, Hey, I did a thing. Uh, I mean, even the thing we're talking about with Cosby, like let, you know, let your art speak for itself and then leave it alone. Yeah. Not to say that, I mean, I, again, I'm not positive that I agree with all of this, but to say like, Hey, look, I made a thing and it's the greatest, like, as opposed to something that this brings up for me is like John Stewart, when he was on the daily show, would often, you know, when he's criticizing, you know, the actual right-wing purported news shows. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're like, well, what are you doing? And he's like, I'm making a comedy show. He's like, I'm a comedian. He's like, I'm not claiming to do an important thing. I'm not, he's like saying like, my, the comedy is not important. Yeah, I, I always mean, thought and, that wasn't, yeah, go on, let me hear what you say. Uh, the thing that, yeah, I understand what you're, I think I know what you're about to say. Mm-hmm. And I think that, John Stewart and The Daily Show were doing an important thing. Right. But 
it was a situation where if he said, we're here doing an important thing, that would have, that's what he, that's what Oscar Wilde is saying. Don't do like, don't say, uh, like don't do a great thing, doing a great thing. And then saying, I did a great thing is at least different than doing a great thing and then not saying it. Mm. Oh, that's, that makes sense. That makes the quote make sense. So, and that's why I, and I think in fact, even there's a way in which if you do a great thing, let your thing talk for itself, if it's a great thing. Yes. Yeah. And it's interesting one where one artistic realm where this is not the standard is rap where people make rap all about how they're the greatest at rap. Yeah. (laughs) When in fact, I think, I mean, some of those rappers who say it are the greatest and some of the rappers who say it aren't the greatest. So it doesn't matter whether you're saying you're the greatest or not. If you're the greatest rapper, that will come through in your rap, whatever your topic is. So I actually like, I love like Eminem sometimes is like, I'm like the fifth greatest rapper. Mm-hmm. And he like names rappers that he thinks are better. Which is by rap standards, humility. Oh yeah. yeah. Uh, he's like, yeah, there's like four people better than me. Uh, <laughs> and in fact, there might not be, you know, mm-hmm. he is great at rap and it's seen whether, whatever he's talking about, you know, he's talking about his life or, uh, you know, her, uh, horrendous things that I don't agree with uh-huh. or, but just, it is, uh, talking about like the beliefs of Oscar Wilde because I think that Eminem's rap is beautiful. Like I think it is so and and a hundred percent not moral. Like I mean, actually, the the album that he put out most recently, like this past week, uh, <laughs> he is talking about more. Like he is becoming like politically engaged and talking about like the current climate in ways that. Uh, he, I think, not re- hasn't really in the past, and it doesn't, you know, undo like the times that he's used gay slurs and mm-hmm. talked about, uh, you know, and been misogynistic. And though, but those are ways in which I'm not, you know, saying I forgive you for thinking those things or putting that into the world. But I can, I. This is one place where I'm like, this art is beautiful in a way that I wouldn't say I wish for people to be like this. Hmm. Yeah, that's a great example. So yeah. I I accept what you're saying, Oscar Wilde. It makes sense to me. <laughs> but also I like that I'm agreeing with him in a way, but also it's about audio beauty and not visual beauty, which is what he claimed was the highest. Yeah. Well, I strive to make audio beauty all the time. I think we made some we made here some today. sweet, sweet audio beauty right here. <laughs> Mike, thanks so much for doing the show. Thank you, Danny. It was a pleasure. It was an audio beauty. Yeah, thanks. And thank you for being my friend. The same. All right, everybody. Thank you for tuning in. Um, that's our show. Thank you, Mike Kaplan. Please pick up a copy of Fair Enough, the comic book. Issue two, still available. Go to fairenoughcomic.com and get your signed copy today. And uh, that's it. Write in to comical at yahoo.com. Please, please just take a minute, jump on iTunes, leave five stars and a nice comment. I know I always ask for it, but every now and then I really got to push for it because otherwise it doesn't happen and we drop on the charts and people don't see us and it's a, it's a whole to do. So that's something you could do. That's real quick and easy uh, to show some gratitude and appreciation for the show. Jump on there. And by the way, I read every one of them. There aren't that many of them. There's very few of them. But when they come in, I read them, and uh, they make me feel good. So that's something nice you could do uh, for me. 
I hope you'd want to do that. Thank you very much, everybody, for tuning in. And, of course, thank you to Alex Fisella for finding our great information to go through, the philosopher and the quotes. And thank you to Logan Heftel for mastering the audio. All right, everybody, take it easy, and I'll see you next time with another exciting and jam-packed episode of Modern Day Philosophers. Goodbye. <laughs>